Okay, this morning is our Fire Away Sunday. So it's a little bit different than things the way we normally do things. If you're visiting, this is not the way we normally do this. But you were given the uh, opportunity this past month to submit questions, Bible stuff, theology, church protocol, current events, whatever. And this morning we're supposed to try to answer those. Uh, we have got in over 35 questions, excellent, excellent questions. And so if you just do the math, there's just no way we're going to be able to get to all of them. If your question was not uh, addressed, please don't take it personally. If it's, if it's not just a curiosity thing, you know, you know that there are questions sometimes that can get us stuck because we just don't see an answer. And instead of just going down that road, please just email myself or Mike. We're not bastions of all knowledge. We got that. But we'll do the research. We can maybe give you some resources, just some things to think about with that. So um, this is good. Please know, too, that that which makes a good question a good question is often it's controversialness, right? And so we've got some, we're trying to, we didn't throw all the controversial questions in a different pile and leave those alone today. So we're dealing with some of these. But um, I would say on issues that are secondary issues, um, you may not agree. I'm sure we don't all agree with each other anyway. You might not agree with us, but, but hopefully we'll say some things that will get you thinking. So first question, let's jump right in. Here's a question. I love this question. We have several along this line, but it's how as a Christian do I respond to someone who argues that the Old Testament account of creation is not consistent with the scientific studies theorizing the world is millions years old? I love this. I love this question because this is uh, dealing with people, the integrity of God's word kind of almost talking with this. Um, I, I would answer this and you got to stay with me through this answer. But I would say if someone came to me and they said, hey, the, the science is saying one thing about how, how old the world is and the earth, the Bible says something else. And there's too big of a discrepancy. I would say the Bible doesn't answer that question. Um, Historically, we have associated old earth with evolution. We've married those two. Those were one issue. Um, that's really not the case anymore. There, there are two separate issues. There's the age of the earth and then there's the evolution thing. So we just need to separate those. They're tip, I mean, the evolutionary folk have to have the old earth. I got it to make sure they have enough time to get all the evolution processes to work through. Um, but just because you hold to an old earth theory does not mean you're an evolutionist. For example, Hugh Ross, John Piper, Tim Keller, they hold to old earth, but they are not evolutionists. Uh, that's earth is 4.5 billion years old, universe 13.7 billion. You've got, of course, the young earth guys, uh, Ken Ham, Creation Research, Creation Museum, um, 10,000 years old is, is the earth. Now, um, so what I would do if someone came to me, I'm going to try to get them to Jesus because ultimately whether they are in the family or not has nothing to do with their view of origins, right? You're not going to stand before the gate one day and Peter say, why should I let you into heaven? And, and you, you say whatever and he'll say, well, listen, you have the wrong view of origins, man. You can't get in here. That's not going to happen. Their understanding of who Christ is, is what is going to make the difference. So I would say the age of the earth thing, I try to avoid that. Sometimes you, you can't. I, I got that. 
But as Christians, here's where we have to stand on, on this one. The age of the earth, wherever you are, okay. I personally wouldn't make it an issue of argumentation. But evolution, now it's another issue. And this is why it's an issue for me, I think, for the Bible. First of all, according to God himself, it wasn't until Adam and Eve sinned that death entered, right? The day you eat it, you shall surely die. Paul says in Romans 5 that through one man's sin, death entered into the world. And yet the evolutionary model requires death, lots of it, for hundreds of thousands of years before Adam, whatever, whoever he would be, whatever ape stage something gets claimed as, as Adam actually would, would, would sin. So I struggle with that. But more important than that, and this is, this, is, this, is, this is the issue for me, and you need to know I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a geologist, I'm not a paleontologist, I'm not a chemist. Uh, so Bible, though, Romans 5 says this. Let's listen to this. He says, for if because of one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man. It's referring to Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's juxtaposing, right? This one man, Adam, and one man, Jesus. Now, the syntax of the verse does not allow you to say, this one man is kind of just a metaphor thing, but this one is an actual literal historical person. Either they are both actual, literal, historical people, or they neither one. If this Adam is a metaphor for just mankind in general, then Jesus is, is a metaphor. Jesus himself believes in this historical Adam, and, and this is why this is important. If there's no historical Adam, there's no fall, there's no depravity, there's no made in the image of God, there's no redemption. This is a big, big deal. All of Scripture, I think, is, is, is resting on this. Now, what I would do, I, so I'm giving someone comes to me, I'm giving them room for the age of the earth, that's fine, I, I don't know, that's wonderful. I would challenge them with the evolutionary thing, but then I would say this, I would challenge them and, and say, the biblical view of origins is much more compelling than the atheistic view of, of origins, and you actually want the biblical view of origins. This, if you think the, of the atheistic view of origins, life is just an accident. We're just an accident. I mean, we're just a total accident. One day we'll burn out. It, it really doesn't matter. There's no meaning in life. There's no purpose in life. There's definitely no, no justice. There's no equality. It, life is survival of the fittest, right? I mean, it is just a, a cold, dark, meaningless accident. Uh, that's all it is. And so how can somebody who holds to that view of origins decide, well, I'm all for justice, and I'm all for equality, and I'm all, what are you talking about? There's no equality in this. It's survival of the fittest. There's no equality in this. It's, there are no justice in this. There's no love or kindness in this. They want this because it means there's no God. I don't have to answer to God, but yet I want the biblical ethic. It, 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 but if you believe that God created out of love, he created in his image, that life is good, it's not an accident, that there's purpose, that, that, that uh, we were made for relationship, we were made for significance. Uh, it's what everybody in their heart knows is true. It's what they want to believe. And the only view of origins that gets you there, I think, is the biblical view. So the biblical view is much more compelling on that.
There's a lot more you can say, but we'll we'll leave it at that. Okay, Mike, what do you have for us? I had a couple of questions on death, um, which was actually encouraging to me in the fact that um, death is one of those strange things that it happens to everybody. Uh, one in one person dies, uh, uh, but so many people are afraid of it. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're, they're scared of it. They're scared of what's going to happen, what it's going to look like, maybe scared of how they die. Um, and so I think the majority of the world skirts around the issue by just avoiding it. And if we don't talk about it, maybe it, maybe it won't happen. Uh, but the bottom line, it is. It does. Um, and so a couple of questions. The first one was when people who are believers in and followers of Jesus die, do they go to heaven right then and there? Or are they simply dead in body and spirit until Christ returns again? What does the Bible tell us about this? Um, a couple of passages I want to point out to you. First one is Luke 23. Um, this is the, the passage where we see Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and he's got the, the two criminals. Um, one of them puts their faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ right then and there. And Jesus tells the man, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, so we get this picture of like, as soon as he dies, he will enter into paradise. Um, I think a more compelling verse, though, comes from Philippians 1. Um, is Philippians 1, Paul is explaining that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, uh, be present with the Lord. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Second Corinthians in chapter 5, he talks about this too, that to, to be in the body, to be home the body is to be away from the Lord. Um, and so there's, once again, it's this picture of when you die, although your body is dead, your spirit goes on and lives with God immediately. Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism can help you out with this also. If you guys, if you guys don't know what catechisms are, uh, this is a way to teach biblical doctrine and theology using a question and answer form. Um, the, the main, you know, the first one is, you know, what is the chief end of man? And, you know, you, you that have done it before will know it. Um, it's a great way to learn theology doctrine. We do this with our kids. My two and five-year-old are learning doctrine uh, because of this question and answer. We do a kid's version of it. And question 37 asks the same question. And the response is the souls of the believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. Uh, And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection. And so what the Bible tells us is that although our body is indeed dead and waiting to be resurrected, in the spirit, we are united with God. And someday we will be united with our bodies at the resurrection when Christ returns. Uh, and so that's what happens for the believer when they die. Um, some confusion with this is this idea of soul sleep is what people would call this. Do we enter into a time of soul sleep? A lot of times in the New Testament, death is described as just sleeping. Um, um, if you look at all the verses that talk about sleeping when, when you die, uh, to my knowledge, every single one of those is actually in relationship to the body, not the spirit. It's not talking about the spirit. It's actually in relationship to the body. Uh, and that's where that confusion can come from. Um, further on, there was another really intriguing question about what does the Bible say about uh, cremation? Does God prefer full burial or does it matter? Um, as far as the disposal process of the body goes, is cremation appropriate? Is cremation an acceptable method for, for a Christian? Um, let me encourage you in the fact that um, from a theological standpoint, 
cremation, uh, if you have loved ones who were cremated, it does not hinder the resurrection of the body. Um, It does not make it harder for God to resurrect the body. Um, Just as if somebody else were to die a horrific death, um, you know, that that doesn't stop God from resurrecting the body. And there's some people that are like are afraid of that happening, but that's not the case. From a scriptural standpoint, from from a preferential standpoint, does God um, prefer burial to cremation? Um, let me tell you, just ex- explain to you what the Bible seems to imply. Um, the disposal of the body by fire, by cremation, it's only been re- referenced twice in scripture. Um, Joshua 7 with Achan, when Achan, when Achan was struck down, uh, when, when he was killed, uh, he was his body was disposed by fire. First Samuel 31, Saul was also. Um, in those two instances, though, although it happened, um, th- there is a real sense that this wasn't a good thing. This was almost a, a disrespectful form of disposal of the body. Um, you see the pattern that's kind of put forward um, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Abraham wanted to find a proper, a beautiful burial site for his wife, Sarah. Um, you know, Joseph uh, wanted to make sure that um, he wanted to make sure that his bones were put in a coffin, that he was buried in his home. And you, you saw that when people died, there was reverence for the body, for the disposal of the body. The body is important. Um, the body is very important. Um, and so to say, you know, what does the Bible tell us about this, or what, what does God prefer? Um, I'm very hesitant, unless Scripture explicitly states it, uh, to, to speak on behalf of God. Um, I want to let God speak on behalf of God. So, so does God prefer full burial, or, or does it matter? Um, I wouldn't go as far to say that this is an issue bold enough to say one way or the other. However, I do think it's a good question. And I do think it's something that we need to think about. And I want you to understand, uh, if I've completely offended you, uh, we've had loved ones in my family that we've cremated. Um, and perhaps I should have given it more thought than, than I did. Um, but we didn't. And we've had that. And that won't restrict God from r- resurrecting their body if they're believers. Um, this is a non-issue, really. Um, but it's something good to at least think about. Um, last question, just as it pertains to death, is what is heaven going to be like? Um, there's several things that we can know about heaven. Um, it's going to be inf- infinitely perfect. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no pain. There's going to be no diseases. Um, it's going to be glorious because we are united with God as he originally created us to be. Um, it's going to be a beautiful place. It's going to be a physical place because our bodies are going to be resurrected. It's go- we're not going to be like these little spirits, you know, hanging out on clouds playing harps. That's not what it's going to be. We're going to be physical. We're going to have emotion. We're going to recognize our loved ones. Um, I-, I say heaven is going to be. Imagine the most beautiful place you've ever been. Or a time in your life where you were at your optimal joy and happiness, where it seemed like nothing was wrong in the world. Imagine that and then infinitely better than what that was like because there's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more suffering. We are going to know God uh, more full than we've ever known him before. Um, I've heard someone say that going to heaven is going to be like waking up. We're in the shadow lands right now, I think is what C.S. Lewis would call. We're in the shadow lands now. When we die and go to heaven, if we know Christ, that'll happen. It'll just be like waking up. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Good, good. Mike, I mentioned last hour, but just to, just to mention it again, that once in a while someone will, will, will challenge and say, well, do you believe I'm going to heaven? 
and they clearly are not interested in following Christ. Uh, and obviously, they don't understand what the Bible says about heaven, because primarily, more than anything else, heaven is not just like you know a trip to Dis- perpetual Disney World sort of thing. It is ultimately about worshiping God purely in submission to him purely as mentioned you know richard dawkins the author of the god delusion atheist he said if what the bible says about heaven is true that would be hell for me and he's right because he's not interested in worshiping god or being submissive to god and so folk who i want to go to heaven i'm not so sure they do why, if you're not interested in submitting your life to him and, and worshiping him and, and honoring him, if the most important thing in your life isn't, isn't his majesty, why in the world do you want to go there perpetually? I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's a crazy thing. So I think that's an ultimate uh, aspect of, of heaven. A question, <clears throat> here's a good question. We had several on this. What does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Is it okay for Christians to drink? Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Um, A couple things. First of all, easy. We'll start with the easy portion, work down into it. Uh, Drunkenness is always wrong. It's always, always, always wrong. Scripture never, ever condones drunkenness. It always, always condemns drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 commands us, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I had someone one time say, ah, no, 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 you didn't read this with the right emphasis, Mark. And do not get drunk with wine, but but be filled with spirits. Oh, yeah, you know, I can vodka and brandy, that'll work. Now, just for clarity, okay, there's, other, there's other texts, Galatians 5.21, and listen to this text, what Paul says, through the Holy Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, he's putting together quite the list here, right? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. Uh, I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkenness is a big thing with, with God, and it is always condemned. First uh, Timothy 3, Titus 1, uh, leaders in the church cannot be given to drunkenness. Makes lots of sense, doesn't it? You don't want your surgeon to come to you drunk. It's not going to work. You don't even want him to come to you just with a few dr- You want him as sober and pure as he can possibly be. The text is saying you are either controlled by alcohol on one level or you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. So you, you've got... Uh, that idea going on drunkenness is is always wrong think about your own personal experience uh does drunkenness ever bring good things i mean a bunch of folk get together and get drunk and solve the problems of the world when they're drunk or get drunk and come up with this great plan to bring about human flourishing and it, it, it never what is associated with drunkenness well assault and, and, and violence and accidents and death and hurt and regret and god knows this is why he says no drunkenness all right drunkenness no however in scripture drinking in moderation both old testament and new testament drinking in moderation uh, was acceptable you find psalm 104 
the, the Israelites praising God for the gift of wine. You've got Jesus' very first miracle, John 4. He makes wine, for, for crying out loud. Jesus drank uh, wine. He never got drunk, but he did drink wine. And so if we want to be like Jesus, man, I'm just telling you, you know what we need to do? <laughs> Don't go there, right? Because Jesus, we want to be like Jesus, Jesus drank wine. Jesus also spoke Aramaic. Jesus wore a robe. Jesus never ate pizza. Jesus didn't have a license. Uh, Because he lived in his culture, we got to be real careful just transposing that culture over into ours. We're different. We're in a, we're in a, in a different, a different world today. And so there's, there's some differences. That, that I think need to be uh, addressed. There was a cultural difference in that time. There was, you could hardly find a home where they didn't drink wine. I mean, the children drank wine. It was, it was for survival. It was for refreshment. Uh, it was often, not always, but it was often diluted down. It was to, to spread it out so you were able to, to have something to, to uh, refresh yourself on a, on a regular basis. It, it was. Um, there was a huge difference in alcohol content. This was just fermentations. This was wine. This was 3 to 15% alcohol content in this wine. Today, talking the United States, right? With the distillation process, we got a little bit different alcohol thing going on. You can have 100% proof alcohol. It's a radical difference. Folk drank for survival often in America. Folk drink for entertainment. Or they drink as a drug to forget or to cope with or for the sake of the effect, for the party, for the debauchery thing. Uh, Radical, radical difference. And so we want to be real careful. Where we, where we go with that. Let me mention, drinking is drinking alcohol in moderation sin. No, 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 it's, it's not sin. But here's a great verse. You need to write this down. You need to know this. 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul says this. Listen, Paul says, great verse. He says, all things are lawful for me. If you're a believer, everything that Scripture hasn't already condemned is lawful. It's lawful. But then Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. Just because it's not sin. We want to know, is this sin or not? Because if it's not sin, by golly, I'm going to grab this baby. Paul says, just because it's not sin doesn't mean it's beneficial. It's playing on the expressway at 4 p.m. Sin? I don't think it's sin. It's stupid. I don't think it's not sin. I would throw smoking in this category. I lost my father at 60 years of age from emphysema. I don't think you're going to be able to find... And I understand about the temple of the Lord uh, deal, but I don't think you can find um, a biblical uh, argument against smoking. But is it the wisest thing? Probably not. I, I don't think it's it's the wisest way way to go. Um, Again, this is probably some of my own conviction. I don't drink. I, I, I drank one time in my life. It was an accident. You can ask my wife about it. It's kind of a funny deal. <laughs> Um, but part of the reason, it's not because I'm a pastor, okay? It, it, it's because I'm afraid of my personality. I think I'm a, I got an addictive personality. It's because um, I remember as a youth pastor burying a couple of kids in the group who were killed, uh, uh, drunk driving stuff. I had one of my guys go to prison because he killed his best friend, drunk driving stuff. Uh, one of the guys from 17 on, quadriplegic the rest of his life, drunk driving stuff. I, I just think the downtick 
is a little bit greater than the uptake. Just let's just we could spend forever on this, but National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism: an estimated 88,000 people will die from alcohol-related causes this year, making alcohol the th third leading preventable cause of death in the United States in 2014. Alcohol-impaired driving fatalities accounted for actually 9,967 deaths. That's 31% of overall driving fatalities. So I'm, I'm not teetotaler here, but if you could wipe it out, you would suddenly wipe out one-third of all deaths that are brought about. Um, more than 10% of U.S. children live with a parent with alcohol problems. If you've been there, you know that that is an issue. Uh, in college campuses, 97,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 report experiencing alcohol-related sexual assault or date rape. Um, Alcohol-related uh, liver disease was the primary cause in one in three transplants. Almost 50% of all liver disease is alcohol-related. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of good here. Um, I think the negative outweighs the potential good radically. Now, now hear me. If I'm in France and my, I'm trying to win my neighbors and my atheistic neighbors invite me over and they offer me some wine from their own vineyard, I'm going to drink it because it's not sin. Got it? I, I'm, I'm going I'm to go down that road. For diplomacy, perhaps, drunkenness always wrong, drinking in moderation. It's not sin. It's not sin. Personally, I think abstinence is your best bet to go, though, unless evangelistic or diplomatic reasons call otherwise. All right. All right, Mike. It's interesting in Ephesians 5 when it talks about the drunkenness and the being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the distinction that um, alcohol is, by medical definition, is a depressant, and being filled with the Holy Spirit is stimulant. Um, and so... I, just a question that I would ask myself anytime before you go drink is, why am I doing this? Um, am I seeking to find comfort in this rather than God? Uh, and that would just be a good rule of thumb, I would say. Um, moving on, we, we had a couple questions on the end times. Um, I, I drew the short straw on that one. <laughs> I've got well, five. Rank has its privileges, Mike. Let me tell you. <laughs> Seniority in practice. Um, explain Revelation 21 to 22. What's the church's view on the end times? Yeah, I'm with you. Um, are we living in the end times? And I have about five minutes. Um, let me start by just explaining that we've got to be very careful about Revelation and how we approach Revelation. Something that I've often said is that um, people were wrong about the first time Jesus came. Uh, there's a good chance we could be wrong um, about the second time Jesus comes. Um, and there are several things that we can be 100% sure that this will happen. Uh, and those are few and far between. There are much more things that we can't be 100% sure on. Um, yeah, Alistair Bag out of, out of uh, Chagrin Falls, Ohio, but you know, guy I grew up under said he would always say that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Um, some of these are main and plain, or are main, um, but some of them certainly are not. And so we just have to be careful uh, that we're holding on to the main things and being okay with letting go of the the other non-main things. Um, and so. With that, understand that Revelation, the book of Revelation, the genre of Revelation is what we'd call apocalyptic. Apocalyptic writing by nature carries heavy
heavy, heavy symbolism. Um, it was symbols that the original readers would have understood, uh, symbols that we in a 21st century context don't necessarily understand as well. When they read it, they would know exactly what John uh, was, was writing in Revelation. Us, not so much. Um, so we've just got to be careful um, not to take these symbols literally sometimes. And we also have to remember that the original purpose of Revelation was written to a group of Christians that we that were being radically persecuted by the Romans. I mean, these people were getting slaughtered. Um, and it would be easy in the face of such persecution, in the face of death, to say, I don't know if I want to hold on to this. What God is doing, one of the main purposes in Revelation, what God is doing is he's kind of peeling back the curtain, showing us the end times and saying, hey, just by the way, hold fast because we win in the end. And I want you to know that we win. And it, it's, yes, you are being persecuted. And yes, I don't want to downplay that this, this is terrible thing, but we win in the end. And that's one of the main purposes of Revelation. Um, and we've got to read it with kind of that mindset. Um, it's not used to try and pre- predict when the end times are, are going to happen. Um, and so the question asks, explain Revelation 21 and 22. I'm actually going to say, take a few chapters backwards because it helps answer one of the other questions. I'm going to start in Revelation 19. What we have in Revelation 19, we've got this rider on the white horse that's, that's coming. Uh, there's some really cool symbol and imagery. This is Jesus returning. Um, Jesus is going to come back. This is one of those main things that you have, if you don't believe Jesus is coming back, you, you are not a Christian. Uh, it's just that is what it is. Jesus is coming back physically. Um, that's what Revelation 19 explains. Revelation 20 talks about this idea of a millennial reign. This, this rider, Jesus, is going to come, and then he's going to reign for what they say is a thousand years. Now, there's three kind of main perspectives of what this millennial is, um, what this millennium is going to look like. The first perspective or interpretation is this idea of amillennialism is what we call it. This amillennial view states that there actually isn't a literal reign of Christ. We just have the church age, Jesus returns, and it launches us into the eternal age. The the term millennial is merely symbolic. Um, The second view is post-millennial. It's this idea that Jesus is going to return after the millennium. It's this idea that the, the, the church age is going to grow to a point where most of the world influences are influenced by the gospel. The church is going to have like this golden age, so to speak, where Jesus will reign from heaven and most of the world will be influenced by Christ, by the gospel, by the church. Um, That's post-millennial. The problem with these two views is both kind of seem to think that culture will get increasingly better as we go through throughout history, and you just observe the world, and that's just not the case. That's just not happening. Uh, and you also talk about how Jesus talked about the end times, and he actually said it's going to be a great time of tribulation is what we call it. It's going to be pain. It's going to, there's, it's going to be a terrible time. Um, and so those views are a little bit harder to um, compare them to Scripture and what it says. We've got this final view, the premillennial view. This is what the alliance holds to. This is what a lot of most, I would say, uh, today Protestant evangelical Christians hold to. It's this idea that Jesus will return and then set up an earthly reign here on earth. Whether it's a literal 1,000 years or not, um, there will be a time period where, where Christ himself is reigning here on earth when he returns. So that's what the church's view on the end times is. Revelation um, 21, we 
get Jesus actually setting up the new heaven, the new earth. We get the description of what heaven's going to look like. Uh, and even that carries over into, into Revelation 22. He gets rid of Satan. He gets rid of, he, he banishes them to hell. Once and for all, all evil will be banished. And then 21 and 22 is how he sets up heaven, what that's going to look like. Um, and the original reader, once again, they would read that and say, oh, this is going to be spectacular. You know, kind of what we were talking about earlier with, with heaven. Um, and so to answer the question, are we living in the end times? Um, you know, Mark 13, Jesus tells his followers, I don't even know. I don't know when I'm coming back. That's only for the Father to know. So if Jesus himself doesn't know, it's impossible for us to know. Nobody knows the times or the dates. Paul wrote that. Um, and so to try and figure out when this is going to happen, I think is a fool's errand um, because you're guaranteed to fail. If you cr- accurately guess when Christ is going to return, it's just that. It's an accurate, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a guess. It's, it's not because of anything you knew. It's just pure luck that you returned it. Um, I, I think it's impossible to say if we're living in the end times. It's impossible to say. And I also believe that every generation since Jesus could make the claim that they were the last generation, that they were indeed living in the end times. And so while I believe that we should have our convictions about this and um, have our beliefs, some of these things we should hold on to them as little, as, as, as loosely as possible because we just can't know. Um, and, and frankly, I think sometimes we waste our time trying to chart it out and figure out when this is going to happen when jesus himself doesn't know so yeah i don't i don't think we can know um yeah you nailed it man five minutes good job mike good job um it's a uh, excellent question and i i mentioned this one because uh we only got this in once but i've heard multiple people ask this question so it should be uh, shorter but let me ask this uh why is the sanctuary dark during the worship service? Is this part of the leadership's philosophy or theology of worship? If so, can you please explain? And yeah, that's, uh, I like this question, actually. I think we, we, we start and we recognize that this is obviously not a biblical issue. There's no text, there's no principle that talks about the level of illumination in your place of worship. If nothing else, you can go to the temple and go to the holy place where there was one lamp and no windows or you can go to the most holy place where there was no windows and no lamps probably kind of dark in there i don't know um but those are not uh, for us uh, those don't bear on this question just to say this is not a biblical issue this is a, a preference it's a a, a cultural it's a, a traditional issue i know i grew up uh, all lights on from some of you all had if you're older if you're as old as i am or older than you have because we did all of our singing with in books because the screen the projection thing wasn't really out there yet and so you had to be able to read the words so we had all the lights up um you probably could have pulled the overhead projector but those were too cheesy right so um today with the advent of the screen as a matter of fact, if it's too bright in the room, it can actually diminish the uh, ability to see the words. So there's a practical level, but that's not the main one. Let me focus a little bit on the second reason, and I don't expect it to satisfy everybody at all. But just to hear this, I was part, let me, best is illustrated, right? I was in a conversation short time back 
and there was a uh, older gentleman in the conversation who uh, I admired deeply. I consider this person uh, a mentor of sorts, very godly person, and they were questioning, uh, is it too dark in the sanctuary during worship? I didn't to say anything. There was another uh, younger businessman guy in the, in the conversation who spoke up and he said, oh, please don't turn the lights up because if you do, that will impede my worship because when, when the, all the lights are on, I'm looking around at everybody else. I'm distracted and I'm wondering how this person's worshiping that. and I'm self-conscious because I'm wondering if anybody will see me. But when you pull the lights down, I'm not worried about this person, and I'm not worried about this person. It's almost a sense of spiritual intimacy. It's just God and I. And if the lights are off me, then I can raise my hands. I can close my eyes. I can enter into an an intimacy with Christ that uh, personally, that's what this gentleman was saying, it's difficult for me to get there with all, all lights, all lights on. And so I, I just mentioned that it's uh, when things happen, it's not just helter skelter. Everyone's doing this. Let's do this. There's a reason why, a reason behind what we do. So that was, that was pretty short. Yeah, it's good. You got one more, man. Last one. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? Wow. Um, <laughs> you drew, really did get the short end here, didn't you? Drew another short straw. <laughs> Man. Why does God allow natural disasters to happen? Yeah. Kind of a two-parter question. It's a hard question because this is personal. Um, it's extremely personal. This is this is beyond now thought or practice. This is this affects me. I think we've all experienced loss um, and hurt and pain and bad things happening to us. Um, my you know my wife and I. Uh, not many people know this. Just last December, we, we had a miscarriage, uh, and it's painful. And it's not something that goes away either. There's reminders. Just this past week, something happened. It reminded me of it, and it's not a pain that easily goes away. Um, and so, we what do we do with this? This is, you know, we obviously there is bad in the world. What is the solution, and why does it happen? Um, it's important to know that. Um, Bad things are in the world not because of God. God didn't, uh, God created things to be perfect. That was his original design. Bad things entered into the world when sin entered into the world. Um, sin happened. Um, God hasn't made a mess of things we did. And I, I think it's kind of interesting that we as human beings are completely lost. We are, and that's an understatement. We're completely devastated by sin we're corrupt we're blind we're perishing we're you know this is all what scripture affirms about us and so we've made a mess of things and then we have the the you know the guts to ask god why he let it happen um it's just it's sometimes odd to me you know we want that free will Uh, we want god to give us free will and then when we mess things up with that free will um we we play the blame game and put it on god adam did that (laughs) this is your fault god you the woman you gave me um did this Uh, and it's a trend that still continues today um so oftentimes when bad things happen we often push god away um, and I'm convinced that one of my relatives is not a Christian because of this problem, um, because of this question. Um, but in all reality, we ought, we ought not push God away. We ought to go to him in comfort, for comfort. We ought to go for him for the, the answers. Um, to give you an illustration that I've heard, you know, let's say Ella, my five-year-old, is running in the park. She falls and skins her, her knee. 
Um, I go and embrace her, and in her confusion and in her pain and in her discomfort, she doesn't look at me and says, why did you let that happen to me? Um, No, she embraces my comfort. She embraces the fact that um, I have the answer, I have the comfort, I can bring good into the situation even though it happened. So the same is true of God in us. Um, Second, a, a, a remark to be made is that Jesus understands this. Um, you know, he lived as a human and he shares in our suffering. And um, God, through Jesus, you know, through him incarnate, understands our pain, understands our suffering. Um, he gets it. Uh, he, he relates to you in that. Um, as far as the natural disasters go, you know, Romans 8 is very clear on this. It talks about that the whole creation has been groaning together for the pains of childbirth. Not only when sin entered the world were humans affected, but creation itself was affected, and creation itself is looking to be redeemed. It's looking to be restored. Um, there is comfort to know that God is in the business of restoring. That's God's intention. Um, yes, it has happened and it's our fault, but God isn't going to let us um, just sit here. But if we're following him, he's going to restore us. It is his goal to restore us and to redeem us. And he's done this through Jesus Christ, through dying on the cross and through being resurrected from the grave. And that's the ultimate proof that God is here to restore because here Jesus died. He he was dead, his body in the grave, and and Jesus restores him physically. It's just a a very large illustration of how he's going to restore us um, one day for those who believe in Christ. Um, We got to be careful when we counsel people who are going through pain and and have bad things. Um, I wouldn't tell them right out of the gate, well, um, this has happened because of your sin, because it's not true, it's not even theologically accurate. there's a verse in Amos chapter 3 that talks about how even natural disasters are in his plan. Um, so there is something to be said about sovereignty. The fact that God, you, we have to believe that although sin affects us, that if we are believers, what Paul reminds us in Romans is that all things work together for the good of those who believe in Christ. Um, and so if you are believing in Christ, Things will be worked out. And yes, you may experience bad things, but God often can and will restore those things. Um, Another thing, oftentimes in our pain, is God uses those things to draw us to him. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about this thorn in his flesh that he asked God to take away, and and God didn't. Um, And he says, because my grace is sufficient to you. He wanted Paul, and Paul accepted this. He wanted Paul to be drawn closer to himself. And once again, I would never throw that out for the first thing in a counseling or a, you know, we're called to mourn with those who mourn. Um, But when the pain isn't as striking... Uh, when we have a moment to um, to kind of just observe situations that happen and bad things happen to us, we can take a step back when we're not as emotionally invested into it. We can take a step back and say, God is sovereign. Maybe he's teaching me something here. And ultimately, all things work together for our good. There will be a day when Christ restores everything. You know, Mike, I heard an illustration one time that's been helpful for me. But it's that uh, picture of, I don't know the exact word, I don't know if it's macrame or whatever, you know, where you have the needle point, where you do all the needles, and you make this beautiful picture. But if you look at it from underneath, 
it's just a big old mess. I mean, it's got, it's got, what does this have to do with anything? It makes no sense. It's confusing. It looks like nothing. But if you get on the other side of it, oh, my goodness, it's a beautiful picture. And right now on earth, we are looking up. We see stuff that makes no sense to us. We don't understand. Uh, I think we have to hold that perspective of Job. Though he slay me, yet I'll trust in him. I still, even though I don't understand, and it looks like it's not going right, God's supposed to be in control, and it's not doing this, even though he slayed me, yeah. I'm still going to trust in him. I yeah. think that's, would, you, would you pray for us? And um, even, Mike, as you mentioned, our hope, that's what we're for. We, live in a, we don't live in heaven. This is a fallen world. We're in this fallen world right now, but that's our hope. That's yeah. what we're looking for, for the fact that uh, when everything's fixed. Yeah. Would you pray for us in that regard and remember the the offering? Absolutely. Dear Heavenly Father, we lift up our time.